Chapter 15 of The Three Hostages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are on the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Schneider. The Three Hostages by John Buchan. Chapter 15. How a French Nobleman Discovered Fear. I have twice heard from Turpin the story I am going to set down, once before he understood much of it, a second time when he had got some enlightenment, but I doubt whether to his dying day he will ever be perfectly clear about what happened to him. I have not had time to introduce Turpin properly, and in any case I am not sure that the job is not beyond me. My liking for the French is profound, but I believe there is no race on earth which the average Briton is less qualified to comprehend. For myself I could far more easily get inside the skin of a Bosch. I knew he was as full of courage as a berserker, pretty mad, but with that queer core of prudence which your Latin possesses, and which in the long run makes his madness less dangerous than an Englishman's. He was high-strung, excitable, imaginative, and I should have said in a general way very sensitive to influences such as Medina wielded. But he was forewarned. Mary had told him the main lines of the business, and he was playing the part she set him as dutifully as a good child. I had not done justice to his power of self-control. He saw his sweetheart leading that blind, unearthly life, and it must have been a torture to him to do nothing except look on. But he never attempted to wake her memory, but waited obediently till Mary gave orders and played the part of perfection of the ordinary half-witted dancing mountebank. When the row with Archie started and the scurry began, he had the sense to see that he must keep out of it. Then he heard Archie speak his real name, and saw the mischief involved in that, for nobody knew him except Mary, and he had passed as a Monsieur Claude Simon from Buenos Aires. When he saw his friend stand up to the bruiser, he started off instinctively to his help, but stopped in time, and turned to the door. The man with a black beard was looking at him, but said nothing. There seemed to be a good deal of racket at the foot of the stairs. One of the girls caught his arm. "'Near go that way,' she whispered. "'It's a raid, all right. There's another road out. You don't want your name in tomorrow's papers.' He followed her into a little side passage, which was almost empty and very dark, and there he lost her. He was just starting to prospect when he saw a little Dago whom he recognised as one of the bartenders. "'Up at the stairs, Monsieur,' the man said. "'Then the first to the left and down again. You come out in the yard of the Apollo garage. Quick, Monsieur, all the flic will be here.' Turpin sped up the steep wooden stairs and found himself in another passage, fairly well lit, with a door at each end. He took the one to the left and dashed through, wondering how he was to recover his hat and coat, and also what had become of Mary. The door opened easily enough, and in his haste he took two steps forward. It swung behind him so that he was in complete darkness, and he turned back to open it again to give him light but it would not open. With the shutting of that door he walked clean out of the world. At first he was angry and presently when he realized the situation a little alarmed. The place seemed to be small, it was utterly dark, and as stuffy as the inside of a safe. 
his chief thought at the moment was that it would never do for him to be caught in a raid on a dance club for his true name might come out and the harm which archie's foolish tongue had wrought might be thereby aggravated but soon he saw that he had stepped out of one kind of danger into what was probably a worse he was locked in an infernal cupboard in a house which he knew to have the most unholy connections he started to grope around and found that the place was larger than he thought the walls were bare the floor seemed to be of naked boards and there was not a stick of furniture anywhere nor so far as he could see any window he could not discover the door he had entered by which on the inside must have been finished dead level with the walls presently he found that his breathing was difficult and that almost put him in a panic for the dread of suffocation had always been for him the private funk from which the bravest man is not free to breathe was like having his face tightly jammed against the pillow he made an effort and controlled himself for he realized that if he let himself become hysterical he would only suffocate the faster then he declares that he felt a hand pressing on his mouth it must have been imagination for he admits that the place was empty but all the same the hand came again and again a large soft hand smelling of roses his nerves began to scream and his legs to give under him the roses came down on him in a cloud and that horrible flabby hand as big as a hill seemed to smother him he tried to move to get away from it and before he knew he found himself on his knees he struggled to get up but the hand was on him flattening him out and that intolerable sweet sickly odour swathed him in its nauseous folds and then he lost consciousness how long he was senseless he doesn't know but he thinks it must have been a good many hours when he came to he was no longer in the cupboard he was lying on what seemed to be a couch in a room which felt spacious for he could breathe freely but it was still as black as the nether pit he had a blinding headache and felt rather sick and as silly as an owl he couldn't remember how he had come there but as his hand fell on his shirt front and he realized he was in dress clothes he recollected archie's cry that was the last clear thing in his head but it steadied him for it reminded him how grave was his danger he has told me that at first he was half stifled with panic for he was feeling abominably weak but he had just enough reason left in him to let him take a pull on his nerves you must be a man he repeated to himself even if you have stumbled into hell you must be a man then a voice spoke out of the darkness and at the sound of it most of his fright disappeared it was no voice that he knew but a pleasant voice and it spoke to him in french not ordinary french you understand but the french of his native valley in the south with the soft slurring patches of his home it seemed to drive away his headache and nausea and to soothe every jangled nerve but it made him weaker of that he has no doubt this friendly voice was making him a child again his memory of what it said is hopelessly vague he thinks that it reminded him of the life of his boyhood 
the old chateau in a fold of the limestone hills the feathery chestnuts in the valley bottom the clear pools where the big trout lived the snowy winters when the wolves came out of the forest to the farmyard doors the hot summers when the roads were blinding white and the turf on the downs grew as yellow as corn the memory of it was all jumbled and whatever the voice said its effect was more like music than spoken words it smoothed out the creases in his soul but it stole also the manhood from him he was becoming limp and docile and passive like a weak child the voice stopped and he felt a powerful inclination to sleep then suddenly between sleeping and waking he became aware of a light a star which glowed ahead of him in the darkness it waxed and then waned and held his eyes like a vice at the back of his head he knew that there was some devilry in the business that it was something which he ought to resist but for the life of him he could not remember why the light broadened till it was like a circle which a magic lantern makes on a screen into the air there crept a strange scent not the sickly smell of roses but a hard pungent smell which tantalized him with its familiarity where had he met it before slowly out of it there seemed to shape a whole world of memories now a turpin before the war had put in some years service in africa with the army colonial as a lieutenant of space and had gone with various engineering and military expeditions south of the algerian frontier into the desert he used to rave to me about the glories of those lost days that first youth of a man which does not return this smell was the desert that unforgettable untamable thing which stretches from the mediterranean to the central african forests the place where in the days when it was sea ulysses wandered and where the magic of circe and calypso for all the world knows may still linger in the moon of light a face appeared a face so strongly lit up that every grim and subtle line of it was magnified it was an eastern face a lean high-boned arab face with the eyes set in a strange slant he had never seen it before but he had met something like it when he had dabbled in the crude magic of the sands the bubbling pot and the green herb fire at first it was only a face half averted and then it seemed to move so that the eyes appeared like light suddenly turned on at night as one looks from without at a dark house he felt in every bone of thing he had almost forgotten the spell and the terror of the desert it was a cruel and inhuman face hiding god knows what of ancient horror and sin but wise as the sphinx and eternal as the rocks as he stared at it the eyes seemed to master and envelop him and as he put it suck the soul out of him you see he had never been told about karama that was the one mistake mary made and a very natural one for it was not likely that he and the indian would foregather so he had nothing in his poor muddled head to help him to combat this mastering presence he didn't try he said he felt himself sinking into a delicious lethargy like the coma which overtakes a man who is being frozen to death i could get very little out of turpin about what happened next 
The face spoke to him, but whether in French or some African tongue he didn't know. French, he thought, certainly not English. I gather that, while the eyes and the features were to the last degree awe-inspiring, the voice was, if anything, friendly. It told him that he was in instant danger, and that the only hope lay in utter impassivity. If he attempted to exercise his own will, he was doomed, and there was sufficient indication of what that doom meant to shake his lethargy into spasms of childish fear. "'Your body is too feeble to move,' said the voice, "'for Allah has laid his hand on it.' Sure enough, Turpin realised that he hadn't the strength of a kitten. "'You have surrendered your will to Allah till he restores it to you.' That also was true, for Turpin knew he could not summon the energy to brush his hair unless he was ordered to. "'You will be safe,' said the voice, "'so long as you sleep. You will sleep till I bid you awake. Sleep he probably did, for once again came a big gap in his consciousness. The next he knew he was being jolted in something that ran on wheels, and he suddenly rolled over on his side as the vehicle took a sharp turn. This time it didn't take him quite so long to wake up. He found he was in a big motor car, with his overcoat on and his hat on the seat beside him. He was stretched out almost at full length, and comfortably propped up with cushions. All this he realised fairly soon, but it was some time before he could gather up the past, and then it was all blurred and sketchy. What he remembered most clearly was the warning that he was in grave peril, and was only safe while he did nothing. That was burned in on his mind, and the lesson was pointed by the complete powerlessness of his limbs. He could hardly turn over from his side to his back, and he knew that if he attempted to stand, he would fall down in a heap. He shut his eyes and tried to think. Bit by bit, the past pieced itself together. He remembered Archie's cry and things before that, Mary, the girl in green. Very soon the truth smote him in the face. He had been kidnapped like the rest, and had had the same tricks played on him. But they had only affected his body. As he realised this tremendous fact, Turpin swelled with pride. Some devilry had stolen his physical strength, but his soul was his own still, his memory and his will. A sort of miasma of past fear still clung about him, like the aftertaste of influenza, but this only served to make him angry. He was most certainly not going to be beaten. The swine had miscalculated this time. They might have a cripple in their hands, but it would be a very watchful, wary, and determined cripple, quick to seize the first chance to be even with them. His anger made his spirits rise. All his life he had been a man of tropical loves and tempestuous hates. He had loathed the Bosch, the Freemasons and Communists and the deputies of his own land, and ever since Adela's disappearance he had nursed a fury against a person or persons unknown. And now every detestation of which he was capable had been focused against those who were responsible for this night's work. The fools! They thought they had got a trust sheep, when all the time it was a lame tiger. 
the blinds of the car were down but by small painful movements he managed to make out that there was a man in the front seat beside the chauffeur by and by he got a corner of the right-hand blind raised and saw that it was night-time and that they were moving through broad streets that looked like a suburb from the beat of the engine he gathered that the car was a rolls-royce but not he thought one of the latest models presently the motion became less regular and he realized that the suburban streets were given place to country roads his many expeditions in his delage had taught him a good deal about the ways out of london but try as he might he could not pick up any familiar landmark the young moon had set so he assumed that it was near midnight it was a fine clear night not very dark and he picked up an occasional inn and church but they never seemed to pass through any village. Probably the driver was taking the less frequented roads, a view he was confirmed in by the frequent right-angled turns and the many patches of indifferent surface. Very soon he found his efforts at reconnaissance so painful that he gave them up, and contented himself with planning his policy. Of course he must play the part of the witless sheep. That duty, he thought, presented no difficulties, for he rather fancied himself as an actor the trouble was his bodily condition he did not believe that a constitution as good as his could have taken any permanent damage from the night's work the nights he must have been away for more than one night for the row with archie had taken place very near twelve o'clock this must be the midnight following he wondered what mr victor was thinking about it and mary and hannay the miserable Hannay had now four lost ones to look for instead of three. Anyhow, the devils had got an ugly prisoner in him. His body must soon be all right, unless, of course, they took steps to keep it all wrong. At that thought, Turpin's jaws set. The rule of the docile sheep might be difficult to keep up very long. The next he knew the car had turned in at a gate and was following a dark tree-lined avenue. In another minute it had stopped before the door of a house, and he was being lifted out by the chauffeur and the man from the front seat, and carried into a hall. But first a dark bandana was tied over his eyes, and, as he could do nothing with his arms or legs, he had to submit. He felt himself carried up a short staircase, and then along a corridor into a bedroom, where a lamp was lit. Hands undressed him, his eyes still bandaged, and equipped him with pyjamas which were not his own, and were at once too roomy and too short. Then food was brought, and an English voice observed that he had better have some supper before going to sleep. The bandage was taken off, and he saw two male backs disappearing through the door. Up till now he had felt no hunger or thirst, but the sight of food made him realise that he was as empty as a drum. By twisting his head he could see it all laid out on the table beside his bed. A good meal it looked. Cold ham and gelatine, an omelette, salad, cheese and a small decanter of red wine. His soul longed for it, but what about his feeble limbs? Was this some new torture of Tantalus? Desire grew, and like an automaton he moved to it. He felt all numbed with needles and pins everywhere, but surely he was less feeble than he had been the car. 
first he managed to get his right arm extended and by flexing the elbow and wrist a certain life seemed to creep back then he did the same thing with his right leg and presently found that he could wriggle by inches to the edge of the bed he was soon out of breath but there could be no doubt about it he was getting stronger a sudden excess of thirst enabled him to grasp the decanter and after some trouble the stopper to draw it to his lips spilling a good deal he succeeded in getting a mouthful la rose he murmured and a good vintage it would have been better if it had been cognac but the wine put new life into him he found he could use both arms and he began wolfishly on the omelette making a rather messy job of it by this time he was feeling a remarkably vigorous convalescent and he continued with the cold meat till the cramp in his left shoulder forced him to lie back on the pillow it soon passed and he was able in fair comfort to finish the meal down to the last lettuce leaf of the salad and the last drop of the claret the turpin who reclined again on the bed was to all intents the same vigorous young man who the night before had stumbled through that fateful door into the darkness but it was a turpin with a profoundly mystified mind he would have liked to smoke but his cigarettes were in the pocket of his dress clothes which had been removed so he started to do for his legs what he had already achieved for his arms and with the same happy results it occurred to him that while he was alone he had better discover whether or not he could stand he made the effort rolled out of bed on to the floor hit the little table with his head and set the dishes rattling but after a few scrambles he got to his feet and managed to shuffle round the room the mischief was leaving his body so much was plain and for natural stiffness in the joints he felt as well as ever but what it all meant he hadn't a notion he was inclined to the belief that somehow he had scored off his enemies and was a tougher proposition than they had bargained for they had assuredly done no harm to his mind with their witchcraft and it looked if they had also failed with his body the thought emboldened him the house seemed quiet why should he not do a little exploration he cautiously opened the door finding it somewhat to surprise unlocked the passage was lit by a hanging oil lamp carpeted with an old-fashioned drugget and its walls decorated with a set of flower pictures turpin came to the conclusion that rarely in his life had he been in a dwelling which seemed more innocent and homelike he considered himself sensitive to the nuances of sinister in an atmosphere and there was nothing of that sort in this he took a step or two down the passage and then halted for he thought he heard a sound yes there could be no doubt of it it was water gushing from a tap someone in the establishment was about to have a bath then he slipped back to his room just in time the someone was approaching with light feet and a rustle of draperies he had his door shut when the steps passed and then opened it and stuck his head out he saw a pink dressing-gown and above it a slender neck and masses of dark hair it was the figure which he of all men was likely to know best it seemed that the place for him was bed 
so he got between the sheets again and tried to think. Adela Victor was here. Therefore he was in the hands of her captors and made a fourth in their bag. But what insanity had prompted these wary criminals to bring the two of them to the same prison? Were they so utterly secure, so confident of their power, that they took this crazy risk? The insolence of it made him furious. In the name of every saint he swore that he would make them regret it. He would free the lady and himself, though he had to burn down the house and wring the neck of every inmate. And then he remembered the delicacy of the business, and the need of exact timing if the other two hostages were not to be lost. And at the thought he groaned. There was a tap at the door and a man entered to clear away the supper-table. He seemed an ordinary English valet, with his stiff collar and decent black coat, and smug, expressionless face. "'Beg pardon, my lord,' he said. "'At what hour would you like your shaving-water? Seeing it's been late night, I make so bold as to suggest ten o'clock.' Turpin assented, and the servant had hardly gone when another visitor appeared. It was a slim, pale man, whom he was not conscious of having seen before, a man with grey hair and a melancholy droop of the head. He stood at the foot of the bed, gazing upon the prostrate Turpin, and his look was friendly. He addressed him in French of the most Saxon type. Etez-vous confortable, monsieur? C'est bien. Soyez tranquille. Nous sommes vos amis. Bonsoir. End of chapter 15 Recording by Lizzie Schneider